Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series called God's Presence Among His People. So let's turn to the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15 today, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Revival. Revival is an interesting phenomenon in the Christian church. You know, there have been times when revival has resulted in abuses and things that are, well, let's just say extreme. But there are many times when revival, with its stress on repentance and reconciliation with God, well, it's a movement that restores us back to the place where we always should have been. When people sin, even in one area, the reality is that disobedience to God's commands becomes ever more prominent in every area. We become alienated from God. Revival usually results in several changes. Normally, there'll be a deep conviction of sin and a willingness to turn from it. Normally, a deep abiding sense of the holiness of God is felt. And consequently, God's people will feel a greater need for worship and a desire to pray a willingness to become radically obedient to all of God's commands. People will then find the Word of God to be immeasurably precious and will want to spend a great deal of time in the Word. People will often confess their sins against other people as well, seek to be reconciled and live a life of love. You know, when Jonathan Edwards wrote about the first great awakening, he called it a faithful narrative of a surprising work of God. And like many who came after him, Edwards believed that whereas it was important to fast and to preach and to pray for a revival, one could never manufacture a revival. God would, according to his own sovereign ability, break in and do a surprising work. Edwards would have been puzzled that some churches would later hold revival meetings. Edwards would have said, you know, you can hold a meeting to preach repentance and faith, and then amazingly, if God responds in mercy, we will have a revival, but you, you can't plan it. Only God plans that. We've come to the last section of Haggai chapter 1, that is, verses 12 to 15, and we've noticed that as we've begun this book that the first message Haggai gave was dated. He said he gave it in the second year of Darius in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Now, as we will see, Haggai will give us a second date, a date that happens only a few weeks after the first date. So let's read our passage. It's Haggai 1, 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. You know, on the one hand, this passage seems rather straightforward. The first part of Haggai, Haggai spoke a word of rebuke to the people for, for abandoning the building of the temple. It had been 17 years since the building of the temple had begun. The foundation had been laid and the altar had been built. And then trouble had begun and temple plans had been abandoned. 
And in the meantime, the people had built houses for themselves and had, had worked to establish their farms. But the temple, which symbolized the very presence of God in Israel, was long since forgotten. And Haggai denounces this. This is a sin they have lived with for many years now. And so apparently, according to this section, as we've just read, the people decide to build the temple so that a mere 23 days after Haggai first preached, the people began to build something they hadn't done for years. And that's what our text says. But if we examine it closely, we're going to notice that it says more. In verse 12, we notice that there's a response to the word of God. And then in verse 13, we notice that people were encouraged by the word. That is, whereas before they were simply going on with their lives, but now there's a new interest in the word. It's established in their hearts. And then in verses 14 and 15, we also notice the word was, was stirring the people up. In other words, there's a passion that has been altogether absent for years now. And all that happened in 23 days. In short, we're talking about revival a complacent people who have lived out their lives and carried out the basic demands of their religion are suddenly transformed. Well, let's pay closer attention to what happened. Haggai has been saying that the reason the exiles who came back from Babylon and had resettled in their ancient lands were still dissatisfied with their lives, never able to get ahead, short of everything, is because God was refusing to bless them. And even more, God was assuring that they would not have enough. And when the people learn that God has been withholding their produce, while well, we listen to verse 12 again. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Well, let's do some introductions. Who is this Zerubbabel? Well, according to the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel was a builder who was charged with being the general contractor for the rebuilding of the temple. And according to Ezra 3 verse 8, it was Zerubbabel, who actually was there 17 years earlier, who laid down the foundation of the temple. It was Zerubbabel who also built the altar of sacrifice so that sacrificial ritual, the daily ritual, would begin immediately, even before the temple was rebuilt. He obviously had a zeal for the God of Israel. And we also know from Ezra 4 verse 3 that when the enemies of the Jews were trying to stop the building of the temple, that it, that it was Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua who took a leadership role in resisting the enemies of the Jews. And so who was this Zerubbabel? Well, he was a builder. He had a heart for God. He longed for the presence of God among the people of Israel, and he actively protected and defended the people of God against their enemies. But he was no preacher, and so when the building of the temple degenerated into nothing, and when the people just got on with their lives, we have to imagine that his heart was aching for the presence of God among the people. And I, and I have no doubt he was waiting for a prophet of God to take leadership. One wonders about what he's been praying for all of those years as the spiritual life of God's people was going down and down and down. But he had a friend, and the friend's name was Joshua. Joshua was the high priest, and no doubt it was Joshua for those 17 years who had faithfully made sure that the daily sacrifices and offerings were being made along with the high feast days of Israel. And all the while, people were getting on with their normal lives and their spiritual life was degenerating. And along came Haggai, the man they'd been waiting for. That's because Haggai had a direct word from God. 
And so our text says that when Haggai preached that Zerubbabel and Joshua, and then it adds the remnant, that is, those few Jews who had made it back to the promised land. Our passage says that the whole community obeyed. But it doesn't say that they just obeyed. It says they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And then it adds, they also obeyed the words of Haggai because, well, they recognized that Haggai wasn't just giving his own views on this whole matter of the temple. They recognized that Haggai had been directly sent from God. They recognized him as a prophet. Prophet of God had shown up among them. But there's more. We're told that the people obeyed what Haggai had said because, it says, they feared God. Well, why shouldn't they? Suddenly there's a realization that this ragtag group of people coming back from their land as exiles are finding out that God himself has been withholding blessing from them. It's because they had for years now been rebellious. They were religious rebels. I find that unconverted men and women don't respond the way that's described here in Haggai. You know, in our day, unconverted men and women speak about the teachings of the church, or they speak about what the church believes, or they even speak about God in some nondescript way. But, but converted men and women, well, they're impacted by the Word of God. It's the difference between religion and an encounter with the Word. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Here Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, Haggai, if you will, was the word of God in miniature. But the full Bible, all 66 books, are the final and complete word of God. That's why true believers never begin with the words, my church teaches, or my denomination teaches, or this is what my pastor teaches. We're we're not moved by that. We are moved because the Word of God has spoken. That's the beginning of revival. There is suddenly a renewed awareness that the living God has spoken in our midst. That, says Haggai, is what happened in 520 B.C. Every day we hear from listeners across the country, and your words of encouragement mean so much. Mason recently wrote, I really appreciate that you teach the Bible, straightforward, no mincing of words, as it is, and so informative. You know, we're grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your generous support to help extend this program's reach across the nation to resource Canadians with trustworthy Bible teaching. It's a privilege to stand with like-minded and like-hearted individuals who share the steadfast commitment to see others engaged in a dynamic relationship with Jesus, grounded in biblical truth. Your donations are absolutely pivotal in fulfilling Back to the Bible Canada's mission, and we're so blessed by your partnership. To give today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. revival is not just an understanding that God has and is speaking to his people. It's also an understanding that the living God is among us. And rather than finding the word as an unwelcome intrusion, the word is now welcomed 
even when the word rebukes us. Look again at verse 13. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. So notice first that the passage can't emphasize enough that Haggai is not speaking for himself. He is the Lord's messenger. If you want to get a sense of this thing, well, you have to go all the way back to Exodus 7, verse 1. You know, in that passage, God has called Moses to go to Egypt with the demand, let my people go. But Moses doesn't relish the role. And one of the reasons he doesn't want to do it is because he doesn't know how to speak well. And then we come to Exodus 7, verse 1, where it says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, what's fascinating about that passage is that it tells us what a prophet is. Moses is the speaker, but Aaron accurately delivers the message. But in the case of biblical prophets, the prophet himself is never eclipsed. What I mean to say is that the personality of the prophet is clearly seen with, with each biblical prophet. The words the prophet uses sound very much like the personality of that prophet. Well, how does that work? Well, it works for several reasons. Well, first, Listen to what Jeremiah says about the false prophets in his day. I'm reading Jeremiah 23, verse 18, where Jeremiah says, For who among them that is the false prophets has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? So Jeremiah is saying that a mark of a true prophet is that, you know, when God is surrounded by the great host of heaven, It is the prophet himself who is invited into the counsel of the Lord, and the prophet hears the Lord's voice. And to that thought, we've got to listen to Amos 3, verse 7. It says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And that is, God is a speaking God. When he does a work among the people, he reveals that work, and he speaks through the mouth of that prophet, because the prophet has been invited into God's counsel. And then a prophet, once he's been in the counsel of the Lord, lives under a divine command. So listen to what God told the prophet Ezekiel. And here I'm reading Ezekiel 2 verse 7. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. That's to say, whether they repent and revival breaks out, or whether they resist and kill you, it doesn't really matter. You're under a divine mandate to speak, and you've got to do it. That's the cost of being a prophet. It's often resulted in horrible abuse of that prophet. In the case of, you know, Isaiah, he was eventually sawn in two. In the case of Jeremiah, he was put in prison. In the case of Amos, he was kicked out of the country. Well, that's the life of a prophet, for we know that in the case of Jesus, who is so much more than a prophet, but he's a very incarnation of the Word of God. He was nailed to a cross and heard the sneers and mocking of his enemies to his very dying breath. See, I relate all of this because when a prophet receives the kind of positive response that Haggai received, well, you know, it's both shocking and it's exhilarating. It's a surprising work of grace. It's the sign of revival. So the prophet speaks using his own voice, but it's God that stands behind it. Now, I want to be clear about something. The day of biblical prophets who spoke the truth of God for all times, well, that day has come to an end. Why? Well, let's allow Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 to explain that for us. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
What we have in the New Testament is the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was brought the prophetic revelation to its climax. To go back to Old Testament style of prophets is just a step backwards. But the principle in Haggai still remains. We do have a word of prophecy today, and that word is scripture. It declares to us the full counsel of God. It's the final word on all matters of both faith and practice. And that's why in our day, when there's a revival, people hear the word of scripture. They they apply it to their lives, and then in an instant, the Holy Spirit creates a deep conviction, and he breaks down long and repeated patterns, both of active disobedience and neglect of God's commands. The Holy Spirit confronts us with the true counsel of God. You see, in revival, God's people stand up and say, all that God has said, we will do. And what's the response? Well, in response, God says, I am with you. That's exactly what we find in Haggai 1 verse 13. That is, when you start to bend the knee, when you say, regardless of the cost, I'm going to submit, I'm going to obey, I'm going to follow, even if it costs me money or time or a reputation, or if it means my enemies increase or whatever the cost. We can hear the voice of our God behind that. He says, I'll never leave you. I will never abandon you. I'll be beside you all the way through. My power and my covenant will be at hand. You won't walk alone. That's why quite often in times of revival, miracles do follow, for for God is giving us his sign that we don't walk alone. What a precious word this was in the days of Haggai. In spite of the fact that money and resources were scarce, Their commitment to build the temple of God, no matter the cost, gained for them a very precious word. God was on their side. His aid, his power, his resources were never going to be far away. I wonder how many of us are afraid to obey because we're not sure if we can pay the cost. I mean, what if our Savior demands we give up everything? So we fear the cost, but we don't fear the Lord. If we could only hear his promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. With that, we come to a wonderful conclusion in this short passage. Look at the beginning of verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. See, this idea of stirring up your spirit is somewhat akin to being aroused out of a sleep. So you gotta imagine you're in a deep sleep and someone comes to you and and suddenly wakes you up. In an instant, you're taken from the land of dreams to the land of reality. And Haggai is saying the people were suddenly awakened to the command of the living God, whereas they had been once asleep to it, now they're suddenly awake. But notice also that it was the Lord Yahweh himself who had wakened them. This was God's renewing power. This was not produced by human initiative. This was divine initiative. Now, from this, go to the latter half of verse 14, where it says, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You know, it's one thing to commit oneself to obedience to the Lord, and it's quite another to get to it, to act in obedience to the Lord. See, in this case, I I imagine that some of the exiles put their farming on hold for a while. Others others just stopped building their own houses, and others had to free themselves of other commitments. This was now going to be their priority. Now we come 
to verse 15. Curiously here, Haggai tells the exact date on which the building of the temple began. And we notice that it was exactly 23 days from after the date he delivered the prophecy. So why 23 days? What what caused the delay? I think there was no delay at all. Indeed, I'm surprised at how rapidly they obeyed. I mean, anyone who has experience in building will know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to take stock of what materials are at hand. You have to organize the workers. You have to get whatever building specifications might have been drawn up in the past or might have to be drawn up now. And I'm quite sure there there were a lot of cleaning up to do on that 17-year-old building site before anyone could begin to work on the house. But what makes the statement of verse 15 so significant, that is, that they began to work on the 24th day of the sixth month, is that this was right in the middle of the harvest season. That is, most of the people here did have essential jobs. And here I'm reminded that most of the commands of God do come to us in inconvenient times. See, I'm reminded of Matthew 8, 21, where one man came to Jesus and said, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. Now, If I understand that rightly, he's saying, you know, my father's old and until he dies, I can't become your disciple. It's just not convenient right now. You know, revival smashes through every excuse. It lays our disobedience before God for what it truly is and then helps us see with blazing clarity that the only thing that matters is Jesus and faithfulness to his word. True revival launches us to action, and that's why the greatest revivals in history have been followed by a renewal of a calling to worldwide missions. How about you? Are you content with life without God? Or will you today hear the word of the Lord, repent and obey? Will you ask God to renew you? Or are you happy just to go on sleeping? John, the very word revival has to stir up some excitement in you. And yet, you know, it's something we just don't talk about anymore. It's like it doesn't happen, but it, but it should, shouldn't it? I think that uh, throughout the history of the Christian church, and obviously in the Old Testament, there are numerous examples of a national revival in the Old Testament. Uh, and of course, we see examples throughout church history of revival which has brought this just renewed sense of zeal and passion, this unwillingness uh, to live with, you know, with sin anymore, uh, this, this, this deep heart's desire for the lost. Ben, I, I'm going to say that it might be the only hope for the North American church today. Um, we can plan all we want. We can write articles on what's necessary in the church and everything else. I think it's not getting us what we want. I think in the end, we are left with, oh God, break into our churches and do a new thing. Yeah, we need a revival. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Haggai, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts you've given to sustain and grow our global Bible teaching efforts. Your support allows Bible teaching resources and programming to be sent to partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence and trustworthy Bible teaching. 
and we're so blessed for the opportunity to support and participate in International Pastors Bible Teaching Conferences. Thank you to all those who chose to sponsor a pastor. Please continue to pray and consider how you might contribute to these ongoing international initiatives, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. So call today for more information or to offer your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.